Good morning. Sometimes when pastors begin their sermons, uh, they like to do so by quoting a uh, theologian that they admire, and that's what I would like to do today. Jim Newcomer is known for saying, every time you read your Bible from cover to cover, it gets smaller. What he means by that, if, if I can be so bold as to speak on behalf of a great theologian, is that every time you read your Bible, the more clear the big story of the Bible becomes. We get to see how the little parts of it relate to the whole. And the big story of the Bible is a story about redemption and salvation, and it's the story that God's people will be singing for all eternity. But until then, one of the best ways that we can learn that story better is by reading the Bible from cover to cover. Do we agree with that? Okay. <laughs> That's why we hope that uh, you have a Bible reading plan for 2024. Uh, this will probably be, probably be the last time I talk about it, but maybe not. Uh, it doesn't have to be a through the Bible in a year plan, but a plan like that is probably within your reach. Even 15 to 20 minutes a day will get you through the Bible in a year. If you've never done that, we do recommend that. And uh, we have plans available at the Information Center and in the rack in the lobby. But no matter what you're doing this year for Bible intake, make sure you have a plan. All of that is important, but it's only tangentially related to what I actually would like to speak about today. The, the reason that I thought to say it at all is because the passage that we'll be looking at in 2 Corinthians today reminded me of one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Uh, but the passage in 2 Corinthians only reminded me of that verse after several hours of looking and reading and studying this passage. So in other words, through reading and observation, uh, my Bible got a little bit smaller for this study. The verse that I'm referring to, the one that's one of my favorites, is Matthew 5.16. Uh, it's the final sentence in Jesus' salt and light uh, metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and it's called the anchor verse in your notes. I'll also have it on the screen for you. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like I said, I'm not preaching this verse. I'm not going to break it down for you, but I just want you to see it now and again at the end of the sermon in the hope that your Bible will also get a little bit smaller. But please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 6. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, they're underneath the chairs, there's several in each row, uh, you'll find our passage on page 1158, if you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 1158. And we'll be starting in verse 3 of chapter 6. Uh, last time in our How Does Ministry Happen series, we talked about God remaking everything in Christ. In him we have new rules, a new identity, and a new purpose. And the purpose that we have is to spread the fame of God's name and God's works throughout the entire world, calling people to repentance of their sins and the obedience of faith, which is enabled by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The end of chapter 5 says it this way, just a few verses up in your Bibles, verse 20 of chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God 
We're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then the content of that message of reconciliation is verse 21, which says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's your purpose, believer. That's one of the reasons that God saved you. This verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is one of the most clear, simple, succinct explanations of what Jesus did on the cross. He took our place as a sinless substitute so that we could take his place as a righteous son, a fellow inheritor, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of his choice to save and redeem. That's the gospel that Calvary Baptist Church celebrates and proclaims. And if myself or another preacher were to ever stand here and preach a different gospel, you as the congregation would have the responsibility to drag said preacher out of here and tell them to get lost. Because the only man that's indispensable to this church is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only those that are faithful to his message get to preach here. This gospel message in verse 21 was followed by two chapters in, or two verses rather in chapter 6. And this is basically an appeal to believe and to believe today. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 say, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. So they should, and so should anyone here in this room who does not know Christ. Today can be the day of salvation for you as well. But lest we think that uh, these verses are simply a gospel invitation or even a request to walk the aisle and pray the prayer, remember that in reality, Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to a church in Corinth when he says this. He's asking believers to not receive the grace of God in vain. How could a believer do that? Well, you have to know the context of this letter to answer that question. Remember that in chapter 3, one of Paul's big points was that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And if this confuses you, Old and New Covenant, that's okay. Uh, what, what does Old and New Covenant mean? Just to simplify, Old Covenant, Law, Moses, New Covenant, Grace, Jesus. Of course, it's more complicated than that. Those aren't even, that's not even a sentence, right? Those are just some words. But for the sake of a short verbal explanation, just think Old, Law, Moses, New, Grace, Jesus, In the new covenant, the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ is greater than the old covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, It's greater than the old covenant of the law, which Moses gave to Israel. What does this have to do with receiving the grace of God in vain? What does this have to do with what they're being warned not to do? Well, wouldn't it be silly to learn about Jesus' death in our place, verse 21, to learn about that, but also to think, oh, I better keep the law of Moses. We learn about the new covenant, and we think, oh, I better stay over here and keep the law just in case. That's the silliness of receiving the grace in vain. 
beyond that absurdity, though, is uh, the reality that many in that day, the, the false apostles that Paul is writing against, they were actually requiring, these false teachers were requiring and demanding people who did trust in the grace of the new covenant to still keep the law. That's what some of the false teachers were teaching. And Paul will later in this letter chastise those Corinthians for allowing such teachers to speak. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Or another translation says, you put up with it readily enough. And Paul wants them to stop. Stop putting up with the false gospel. The old covenant of law-keeping is not the way that you can stand before God faultless and bold. The only way to do that is to be washed in the blood and to put on the righteous robes of Jesus. So as you can see in this letter, Paul is fighting for the loyalty of the church. He wants to have a positive influence on them for Jesus. That's why we can learn how ministry happens by studying this letter. He wants them to remain loyal to him because if they do, they'll be remaining loyal to the true gospel of grace rather than the false gospel of law-keeping. So as I read our passage today, we'll start in verse 3. If the Spirit grants you the gift of sight, you're going to see the way, the method that Paul uses to increase the credibility of his ministry. You're going to see what verifies or, or what gives credence to Paul's claim that he is the true ambassador for Christ and the ones that the Corinthians should be following. So let's look at our actual passage today, starting in verse 3 of chapter 6, and I will read through verse 13. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as the children. Open wide to us also. So what is Paul trying to do in these verses? What effect is he hoping these words will have on the ones who read them? 
Well, the appeal that he gives at the end reveals his central request. He says, our heart is open to you. We aren't restraining you, but your affections are restraining you. And here's the central request, open wide to us. He's asking for their love, which means you could say that what Paul is trying to do is release the Corinthians or, or convince the Corinthians to release themselves from the bonds or the chains or the prison that is preventing them from loving Paul. And what is that prison or that chain that's keeping them from loving Paul? He says they are restrained in their own affections in verse 12. And in that section of the writing, Paul is, uh, Paul is trying to free them from that restraint so that they're free to love. So our big idea today and our answer to the question of the series, how does ministry happen, is that ministry happens when we liberate the love of others. And if you don't see this yet, my goal is to help you see what Paul is doing in these verses. They're restrained in their affections, but he's calling on them to open wide to him with their love. Now, if that's the central idea, if this really is what Paul wants us to take away, then it must be that the long, long list of commendations that he, that he gives in that passage uh, contribute to this idea. Uh, those, those commendations, they start in verse 4, um, and they don't end until verse 10. So verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Seven out of the 11 verses in, these passage, in, in this passage are uh, simply Paul commending himself. And I'm calling them commendations because he calls them that in verse 3, giving no cause for offense, uh, sorry, verse 4, uh, but in everything commending ourselves in servants of God. And, and then he starts listing things. So there's all these commendations that make up the bulk of the passage. Uh, but before we get to breaking down that list and trying to understand why he says what he says there, let's, uh, let's just read verse 3 and 4a again to see how he introduces it because there's something else we need to see there. In verse 3 he says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. I really want to highlight the fact that uh, Paul said he gives no cause for offense in anything. Uh, but the reason I want to highlight it is because it could easily be misunderstood. Uh, my desire is to explain what this means without giving you a cause to be offended, actually. Uh, so let me start by saying that, that virtues can be overemphasized or they can be applied in the wrong direction. I'll explain what I mean by that. Virtues can be overemphasized or applied in the wrong direction to the point where they actually become vices. Uh, one of my mentors taught me that our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. Uh, how could a virtue be overemphasized or applied in the wrong direction? Just by way of example, let's talk about generosity. Generosity is a virtue. Uh, let's say there was a man who was the sole breadwinner for his family, uh, for his household. His wife didn't work, so he brings in all the money that their family has to live on. Well, this man gets paid on Friday, and he goes to the store to pick up a few things, and, and wouldn't you know, there's a guy ringing a bell outside Walmart asking for donations. So the man uh, drops $100 in the bucket from his new paycheck. 
very generous, right? And then he goes into the store, picks up the items that he needs, and he, he gets in line for the checkout, and the lady in front of him, a single mom, um, she, she is obviously distraught and unable to pay for the things that she needs. Her card's not working, and he notices this. So this man, being a generous person, offers to pay for her groceries. Another $200. There, gone. Uh, Finally, he checks out. He's pushing the cart out to his car, and he gets asked by a stranger for some money. He listens politely and, and concedes, thinking of it as another opportunity from God to be generous. And he gives the stranger $100, and and the man correctly believes, this man in this made-up story correctly believes that generosity is a virtue. And while some people uh, can afford and and should be this generous, uh, for the sake of the illustration, let's assume that this man really can't afford to do this and take care of his responsibilities at home. He would be applying generosity in the wrong direction to the point where it became a vice because his first responsibility is to his family. If he doesn't have enough month or enough money left at the end of the month to take care of them, then his virtue of generosity has morphed into a vice of poor management, poor stewardship. Okay, that's just an example. That's not in the passage, right? Here's another example. Let's talk about patience. Patience is a virtue, uh, but that does not mean it should be applied indiscriminately in every direction let's say that you as a parent give your four-year-old a clear command something like stop standing on the chair and you know that the child heard you and they ignore you and let's say that person you in this scenario just responds well kids will be kids i need to be patient and just go on with your day now, that, that may be patience, but it's the wrong kind of patience, right? The situation calls for a different kind of patience, the patience that allows you to do what needs to be done to that child out of love rather than out of anger, allowing the child to go on disobeying could be described as patience, or it could be described as laziness, abdication, or even hatred, according to Proverbs. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. However, patience applied in the right direction allows the parent to discipline with and out of love. Now, why, why am I going on and on about the misapplication of virtues? I know those are, that's kind of a long illustration, but it should help us understand uh, the phrase giving no cause for offense in anything that Paul says at the beginning of this passage. That's a good goal, to not give cause for offense in anything. And one of the virtues that enables us to accomplish that is kindness. But kindness, like other virtues, should not be applied indiscriminately. We can apply kindness in the wrong direction and really miss what Paul is trying to tell us to do here. We can get caught up in thinking that this verse means Christians should never offend anyone. That's not even what the verse says. It says giving no cause for offense, but we could think that if we didn't look carefully. The problem is that if you believe ministry happens when you don't offend anybody, you hamstring yourself because the gospel is an offensive message. When you preach the gospel, you're telling people that they are born in sin 
and there is nothing that they can do about it themselves. They're totally reliant upon the mercy of God. It's offensive to the philosophy of rugged individualism, which says that you don't need any help. You can, through hard work, you can build and create something good for yourself, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps attitude. And it's also offensive to the philosophy of postmodernism, which teaches that truth is subjective, we can all have our own truths, and the cardinal sin is denying someone else's so-called truth. Just be kind. The type of kindness that Satan approves of is no virtue at all. The gospel is offensive to all because man in his fallenness and in his pride hates God and he doesn't want God's help. To preach the gospel, you have to offend. So why does Paul say he's giving no cause for offense? There's two answers to that question. Answer one, he's talking to believers again. The gospel is offensive to unbelievers. Remember earlier in the letter, Paul talks about the gospel being received differently by different people. In chapter 2, he said, we are the f- a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. But there's two answers to the question. That's, that's one of them. He's talking to believers, not unbelievers. The gospel is offensive to unbelievers. It shouldn't be offensive to believers. The second answer has to do with the meaning of the word anything in this context. I can, I can sense an argument that could exist out there. Anything seems like a really easy word to define. Anything? Doesn't anything mean anything? Like if I say that anything actually means some things, am I distorting the clear meaning of the inspired scripture? The answer is no. Although we interpret the Bible literally, there is a kind of wooden literalness that that should be avoided. I'll jump out of this example to give you another example, and then we'll jump back in. I would guess that over half of you could quote Romans 3.23. So if you know it, say it with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how many have sinned? All passage is clear. All means all, right? No, because Jesus did not sin, okay? So all doesn't mean all. You say, well, that's obviously not what the passage is saying. I agree, kind of. It's, it's obvious, but it's not that obvious. Uh, what I'm trying to show you is that we can't just take the verse that happens to be in front of us and cover our ears while we ignore all the other verses, In Romans 3, when it says all has sinned, it's saying that all have sinned, both Jews and Gentiles. And that doesn't become obvious until you read all the verses in Romans that lead up to Romans 3, 23. The context restricts the meaning of the word all. And that one's easier for us to swallow because we have prior knowledge that Jesus didn't sin. So that one's easy to get. But jumping back to 2 Corinthians 6, in the same way, the context restricts the meaning of anything. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. So the things that are not a cause of offense, but rather the things that act as his commendation to the Corinthians are the things that he's about to begin listing in much endurance and 
uh, in afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments on down the line. That's what he means by anything and everything. It's the list that's in the passage, the list that makes up such a large percentage of this passage of Scripture. What this means is that we need to understand the list of commendations. These commendations are the meat of the passage, and they are the tools that Paul is using to liberate the love of the Corinthians so that they choose to remain faithful to him and to the gospel that he preached them. And this is relevant for us. If we want to live a life that preaches a persuasive gospel, that commends the gospel to the people around us, and we're going to have, have to live a life that resembles this list. And different commentaries will categorize and break down the list in different ways. And I won't bore you with all those details, uh, but there are some things that I need to point out to you that you probably didn't notice on a quick read-through. Uh, once again, the list starts in the middle of verse 4 when he says, in much endurance. But that actually isn't an item in the list. In much endurance is a header for the first nine items in the list. It's a header for the first section. So after in much endurance, there are 27 total items in the list, and they can be broken down into three categories. The first nine of them are trials. The next eight are results of our transformation. And the final ten are what I call paradoxes, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. So we will answer the question, how did Paul and how do we live lives that commend the gospel to others? The first way, represented by the first nine items in the list, is by enduring trials well. Starting in verse 4, in much endurance. The middle of verse 4. In much endurance in nine ways. In afflictions, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. It's quite a list of trials. And although none of us have gone through what Paul has gone through, I believe we can still be instructed and encouraged because uh, this list of nine trials seems to be a representative list of trials that anyone could go through. Uh, break it up into three groups of three, and you'll see what I mean. The first three, afflictions, hardships, distress. These are simply sufferings and, and trials that exist because we live in a fallen world. Uh, those are general troubles that include everything from stubbed toes to sprained ankles to car accidents to miscarriages and infertility and even terminal diagnosis. These are real things that happen to real people who really love the Lord, and sometimes they just seem random. But they happen because we live in a world that's been cursed by sin. And Paul is saying that by enduring these kind of trials well, we commend our life and our ministry to others, to those who witness our life. The second group of three, beatings, imprisonments, and tumults, or some translations call that riots, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These three items in the list of trials represent things that we go through because of others persecuting us for what we believe. There is, a, there is suffering that is out of your control. You don't, you don't decide whether you get cancer or not. This kind of suffering, you could sidestep, 
by compromising, by never telling anyone that you are a Christian, or by qualifying everything that you say. Well, yeah, homosexuality is a sin, but I'm a sinner too, and God loves us all. True enough, but where's the boldness? Paul is saying that when we endure persecution well, we commend the gospel. There's a tendency to think that we commend the gospel by watering it down, making it easier to swallow, not asking much of people or, or being as gentle as possible. But Paul says we commend the gospel by enduring these trials, not by avoiding them. Lastly, the last three in the group of nine are labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. So the first three items were generic sufferings that happen because we live in a fallen world. The second three come from living boldly and being persecuted. The final three are trials that we endure at our own hands as a result of living a disciplined life for the gospel. So remember that Paul willingly supported himself financially by making tents. He purposefully avoided uh, receiving financial support from the churches so that he could, one, show his pure motives, uh, but also he just didn't want to be a burden to any of those churches. Um, And this resulted in a much less comfortable life than he could have had. He had the self-discipline to choose the hard way because he believed it was the better way. One small equivalent of this for us is getting to bed early enough to wake up early enough to have our devotions or to put in the hard work of, of disciplining children when they are young so that they don't turn into destructive young adults. Right? You think the terrible twos are bad. Wait until you see an undisciplined teenager. Like my, my appeal from one young dad to a congregation with many young dads is to put in the work now with the hopes that they can grow up in the enculturation, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First Timothy 4, 7 says, uh, train yourself for godliness. Paul talking to a young pastor. Train yourself for godliness. Don't f- you don't fall into discipline. It doesn't happen to you. You need to happen to it. Uh, and while a lot of suffering is out of your control, there is suffering that you can pay on the front end and avoid later. And that's the discipline of labors, sleeplessness, and hunger that Paul is referring to here. The author of Hebrews says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the first way that we commend ourselves and thereby commend the gospel to those around us is by enduring trials well, whether they be trials that exist because we live in a fallen world trials as a result of persecution or trials that are as a result of disciplining ourselves for the sake of godliness and ministry. The next way that Paul's list suggests we can commend ourselves is by uh, displaying our transformation. This is verses 6 and 7a. The list continues in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the, word of God, or in the word of truth, in the power of God. I chose to call this point displaying our transformation because the word transformation has already been used in this letter to describe our salvation and sanctification. Uh, one of the key verses of 2 Corinthians is chapter 3, verse 18, 
which says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And what better way to commend the gospel than to show the world the ways that the gospel has transformed you, turned you into a new person or a new creation, as chapter 5, verse 17 says. There are a couple things that we can note about the eight items in this section of the list. Uh, Some people believe that Paul intended them to be four uh, couplets, purity and knowledge being the first couplet, patience and kindness being the second, and so on. Uh, And that makes a little bit more sense when the Holy Spirit is translated spirit of holiness, because then the third couplet would be basically holiness and love, which are the two highest virtues that we can think of. Uh, But most people, however, believe that Holy Spirit is, in fact, the correct translation. All the major translations do it that way. Uh, So Holy Spirit, probably a better translation than Spirit of Holiness. Uh, Another note that some people give attention to is that the Holy Spirit is actually the very uh, middle item in the list of 27, in the big list. So there's 13 items before and 13 items after the Holy Spirit. I'll leave it up to you to determine Uh, if you think Paul intended to communicate something significant by placing the Holy Spirit in the center. Uh, My inclination is is no, but I have been wrong before. Um, I'm not a great theologian like someone else in the room. Um, But with those those questions uh, that we've at least mentioned, I'll move on to something that I think we can actually take a hold of, and uh, that is the word gift. That word's not in this passage, but, but all the things in this passage could be described as gifts. Your sanctification or your transformation is a gift. The fruit of the Spirit, the ability to perform virtues, the Holy Spirit himself, and the Word of God, things mentioned in this list, those are gifts from God. In chapter 3.18, the verse I read just a moment ago, uh, says that transformation comes when we look at God when we see him as he is, the Apostle John would say. Uh, The items in this list are gifts. God gives gifts with the expectation that they'll be used for his glory. And one way that we can draw attention to God to commend uh, his gospel to people that we know is by using our gifts to serve other people rather than using our gifts to serve ourselves. Listen to what this commentator says about this section of the list. He says, in summary, Paul assumes that the gospel is discredited by those ministers who are, and now he's going to be listing opposites of what's in the list. The gospel is discredited by those ministers who are lustful, impure, ignorant, overbearing, indignant, rude, unkind, and hypocritical in their love, cultivating those whom they think can benefit them in some way. Such ministers have neither the Holy Spirit nor the power of God, end quote. So the faithful minister of the gospel, and I don't mean pastor when I say that, I mean every Christian, the faithful minister of the gospel, the faithful Christian will use his gifts and abilities for the good of the church, for the good of others, living as a sacrifice just like Jesus did so that others can take hold of eternal life. One more point today. Not only do we commend the gospel to others by enduring trials well and by displaying our transformation, lastly, we commend the gospel by performing 
paradoxes. Now this is the most convoluted of the three, though I hesitate to use that word because my job is to make it clear to you, not confusing or convoluted. But I believe that one of the compelling things about Christianity, about the obedience of faith, is the paradoxes that it creates in people that pursue the obedience of faith. It's actually the reason that we sang the song, O Church Arise. Uh, There's a line in that song that is a paradox that I think is beautiful, and it is uh, with the sword, meaning the word of God, but with the sword that makes the wounded whole. That's not what a sword does. Oh, we're not allowed to talk about knives, are we? With the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. That's a paradox, and I think there are lots of these in the Christian life. Paul mentions a lot of them in 7b through 10. I'll I'll reread that, and then I'll show you even more paradoxes in the letter. Uh, By weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Verse 9, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Also in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, if you were just to Google the word paradox, like I did this week, what will come up is, uh, as a definition, is a logically self-contradictory statement or a statement that runs contrary to one's expectation. Before the paradoxes begin, he speaks of having uh, weapons for both his left and his right hands. Uh, One commentator says, answering the question, like, why does he say left and right, uh, it may be a way of saying that he's fully outfitted or he has, uh, he has the tools needed for every scenario. Uh, but some people also give attention that uh, in combat, the right hand is often used for offense, while the left hand is used for defense, the sword and the shield, left and the right hand. It's possible. Uh, and, and, but then in, in verse 8, uh, he says, after that introduction, he says, glory and dishonor. Remember the question, how are we commending ourselves as servants of God? Well, he says, by glory and dishonor, and then he flips the order uh, by, uh, by evil report and good report. So he's saying the same thing twice, but in opposite order, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. And then it's the rapid fire, deceivers yet true, unknown yet well known, on down the line. All these paradoxes are all pairs of things that can't be true in the same way at the same time time. Um, Of course, he starts off by saying regarded, meaning the Corinthians may think he's a deceiver, but in reality, he's not. Uh, A a common, like, uh, complaint to Paul was that he lied about his travel plans. We've talked about that. In reality, those plans were changed to spare the Corinthians, but not all the items in the list have such a straightforward explanation. How about the second to last item in the list? Uh, Regarded as poor, yet making many rich. A couple notes, not only was Paul regarded as poor, uh, very likely he was poor in reality. Uh, He was making tents as he traveled in order to survive, not taking any money from the churches. Uh, Secondly, uh, he's he's not making many rich. 
in the same way that he is poor. Uh, he's making them spiritually rich. A couple chapters later in the letter, he would say, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I'm not going to I'm not going to get into every item, every paradox in the list because my goal is to keep you attached to the main idea which is according to Paul living out these paradoxes in front of the Corinthians was some, supposed to commend his ministry to them. This is one of the ways that they were supposed to know he was genuine because of the paradoxical nature of his life and ministry. They're not going to apply exactly to us because none of us are single traveling missionaries in the Mediterranean in the first century. But I do believe that when we are truly living by faith, there will be paradoxes in our life that make the gospel very attractive to those who witness the things that we do. Let me give you an example that I call tough and tender. That's a paradox, right? Normally you don't think of someone being both tough and tender, and they can't be in the same way at the same time. So that's a paradox. But we see the toughness and tenderness of Paul in his letters to this church, First and Second Corinthians, and the ones that we don't have anymore but we know a little bit about. He's fighting for his life, almost ridiculing his opponents, telling them to exercise church discipline on people, yet longing for the restoration of those who are repentant. And basically making his every decision to spare the Corinthians from further pain, tough and tender. Where else do we see tough and tender? How about in King David, the warrior poet? He could sing to you or kill you. <laughs> tough and tender. I think we see it in most godly husbands and fathers as well. I once read an illustration in a book that compared godly masculinity to a house, like a physical house. A house has walls, and these walls have an exterior and an interior side. The side that faces the outside world is rough. It can take a beating. It protects both from intruders and from the weather. The side of the wall that faces the family is finished, it's presentable, and comparatively soft and safe. That's the paradox of masculinity. Tough for your family, tender with your family. And when the outside world sees it, what a compelling commendation for the gospel. How can you be so strong and so tender at the same time? It doesn't make sense. That's the power of a paradox. Women can be tough and tender too. There's a story about Susanna Wesley. Some of you probably recognize her name. I'm not sure if this is a true story because I've heard it. I know I've heard it. I couldn't find it in writing anywhere, not even with the help of AI. <laughs> it seems not, but I'm, I choose to believe. <laughs> I heard it. Um, she had 19 children. So just with that, you know tough and tender from the beginning. Nine of those children died in infancy, which is not a terrible ratio back then. Um, two, two of her children became very famous, uh, John and Charles Wesley. Uh, both of these men wrote hymns and preached. 
Charles is more known for his hymns. He wrote over 6,000 hymns in his life. And John is more known for his preaching during the revival in England. Uh, but, but the story about Susanna Wesley is that uh, allegedly she told one of her children uh, when they were a teenager, this was one of her sons, uh, when they were not living for the Lord, seemingly rejecting the faith that she raised them in, she apparently told one of her sons that when the Lord throws you in the flames, I will be the first one to say amen. We kind of recoil at that at first. That's tough. (laughs) There's toughness there. The story goes that God used her tough love to soften the heart of her rebellious son, who ended up not only getting saved, but living a whole life in service to the Lord. May God make our lives as paradoxical as Susanna Wesley, as Paul, even as Jesus, who came as a suffering servant, as creator yet creature, Jesus who longed for the little children to come to him, yet drove out the money changers in the temple with a whip. Paradoxes persuade. Paradoxes make people ask questions. And paradoxes give us a platform to commend the gospel to others. Ministry happens when we liberate the love of others. Restrained in their affections, yet through our commendation of a godly life, they can be set free. Through Paul's example in this list, we can, we can see that we can liberate love by enduring trials well and by displaying our transformation, using our gifts for others, and, and by performing paradoxes. I said at the beginning that my goal was to make your Bible a little bit smaller. Perhaps you too can, can see the connection between the anchor verse at the top of your notes that many of us know so well and this passage in 2 Corinthians. The verse once again says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It should be our goal to liberate the love of others by letting them see our lives for the glory of God. Let's pray. We are grateful for your word, Father, and the instruction that's there. We're thankful that you made an offensive gospel unoffensive to some of us. And we ask that you would do that for the people that are here that do not truly trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Pray that you would choose to save some of them today. And that those of us that do know you would be motivated and informed by how Paul says ministry should happen so that we can live lives that commend the gospel to a world that needs it. We ask this in your son's name.